I recorded this podcast with Faz Shakir, Bernie Sanders' campaign manager, on Tuesday. I woke up Wednesday, like all of you did, to the news that Senator Sanders uh, went into the hospital to have a heart procedure. We wish him the healthiest and speediest recovery. I'm sure he'll be back on the campaign trail very soon. So this is an overview from Faz about their pathway to the nomination and how they see the 2020 race. Thank you. Well, welcome to Campaign HQ. It's October 3rd. We're deep in impeachment land. And so uh, I think this week, next week, as far as the eye can see, a lot of the focus is going to be on the impeachment proceedings and inquiry. We learned this week that now Australia has been <laughs> brought into the Trump conspiracy. So, And it, I think extra interesting in this presidential race because we have so many sitting senators who are running for president. So if this in, does, in fact, move to a trial in the Senate, they're both going to have to be there, so they can't be in Iowa. But those will be moments for them uh, potentially to capture people's imagination. Uh, my view on impeachment, though, is it's far too early to know what kind of an effect it'll have next November. What I do know is Trump will try and use it to maximal effect. I, I don't think, despite some suggesting he welcomes this, I don't think any president wants to head into re-election under impeachment cloud. But they are going to use it to raise every dollar they can, find every new supporter they can, register every new voter they can. You know, I've spent some time online looking at what they're doing on, on YouTube and Facebook. It's very smart, creative, very strong, creative, and I think it's going to work for him. So he's going to build his operation and strengthen his operation, number one. You know, my guess is with swing voters uh, in Wisconsin, in Florida, in Arizona, you know, this doesn't help Trump for no other reason than it's more evidence that he's not focused on them. You know, he's creating distractions. You know, sometimes they're just tweets now. They're serious charges. He could have committed high crimes and misdemeanors. So I don't think it's helpful with swing voters. But at the end of the day, I think when we're 12 months from today, which will be, you know, right before the election and, and people start voting early in some states, I still think it's going to be focused. Those swing voters will be very much focused on their own pocketbook, their own job situation, um, health care, education, and impeachment will be a factor, uh, but just one of them. Campaigns are reporting uh, their fundraising this week. They're starting to. So as of, of this airing, we have Bernie Sanders reporting an enormously strong number of $25 million, which shows his campaign continues to be able to enlist the support of grassroots donors. I'm talking on this program with his campaign manager, Faz Shakir. Um, so we'll hear more about the Sanders campaign and their view of the nomination fight. Uh, Mayor Pete posted a very, very strong number as well. Cory Booker raised about $8 million, but importantly raised about half of that in, in the last weeks, where I think their campaign smartly suggested if they didn't raise a certain amount, they would drop out. So at least for now, he lives to fight another day. It'll be really interesting to see Harris's numbers, Warren's numbers, Biden's numbers. I would be surprised if any of them suggest red alert time, but it will be interesting to see who's built on their performance financially from the last quarter to this, and where there might be warning signs, where if somebody begins to lose more momentum, is that going to follow with problems raising money? So, you know, whether we have candidates drop out because of this report, I think it's possible. I think a lot of them, certainly who've qualified for the next debate, are going to hang on because they want that big stage. Uh, the other thing, of course, that's interesting is the November debate. You know, rules have been advanced by the DNC, so it's going to be harder to qualify. You'll need more donors, more support in polls, um, which I think is healthy. I, I think that, you know, the sooner this now gets down to, you know, anywhere from five to eight candidates who have a credible chance to be our nominee, the better. And that'll start in November. So, um, but I think the Sanders campaign is fascinating because they obviously did well in 16, got 43% of the national vote, got 49% in Iowa, almost winning 60% in New Hampshire, you know, big numbers in some other states. And obviously, he's not getting those numbers in polling right now. Now, you wouldn't suggest he should, because this is a big field. It's not a two-person field. But what's fascinating is he's got a bunch of people out there who's voted for him before, a caucus for him before. And so one of the things I'll be interested to talk to his campaign manager about is if that's what they're focused on, just trying to get back Bernie supporters who might now be parked undecided or went to another candidate, or are they also trying to find new supporters? So he's in a unique position because Biden did run for president back in 08, but only lasted one state, didn't get much support in Iowa. So Sanders is the only person running who knows <laughs> who a lot of people are who voted for him before. And that's valuable currency. And the question, and it's an open question, is can he get a lot of those people back? 
and if he can, then I think he's going to be a serious uh, threat as we get deeper into the primary. But if he can't, and a lot of that vote, let's say, stays with Elizabeth Warren, then I think he'll be in a situation where, you know, he's looking at third or fourth place finishes. So that's really important, I think, for us all to understand is, is what is the Sanders campaign theory on the case? And can they get to the point where they're getting into the 30s or low 40s, as opposed to where they are right now, which is raising a lot of money, but, you know, kind of in that 15 to 20 percent, um, which a lot of candidates would like to have, but is not what you need, you know, basically to win in the early states. So we're joined today by Bernie Sanders campaign manager. Faz Shakir. Faz has a long history in in progressive and and democratic politics, was a top advisor to Senate leader Harry Reid, to Nancy Pelosi, has worked on on campaigns all around the country, was an advisor to Bernie's campaign back in 16. He became the political director of the ACLU and was very involved in in leading the fight against the Muslim ban and, and some of the other atrocities of the Trump administration in the first couple years. And now he signed on to Bernie Sanders' campaign. And so we're going to hear from Faz about the kind of campaign he's building, how they think they're doing today, where they see the race going, how they're going to build their support, how they're preparing for the early states, Iowa through South Carolina, and what their strategy is for the states that come after that. And also talk a little bit about Bernie Sanders' appeal from their standpoint in the general election. So I think it'll be a great conversation. Faz is also the first Muslim and Pakistani American to manage a presidential campaign. So he's already made some history on his own and excited to talk to him about that as well. Okay, we're going to jump right in with our guest, Faz Shakir, the manager of Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. Faz, a lot to talk about. want to start, though, uh, this week you announced your fundraising totals for this quarter. An incredibly impressive $25 million. So congrats on that. Just a couple questions. So one, the composition of your donors, what's the percentage that's donors from the 16 campaign versus new? And do you think that your fundraising um, is going to remain durable through the ups and downs of polls, ultimately contests, some may go well, some may not? Kind of what's your view of the sustainability of the donor base that you've built here? Well, you're right to reference this grassroots funded campaign has shown a strong quarter as you mentioned, $25 million raised, but more importantly, that money is uh, is people. And when we talk about 1.4 million individual donations during this quarter, more important to me is over 1 million individual contributors to this campaign, making it, at this point in time, um, the most grassroots funded uh, and, and highest number of individual donors of any campaign in history. And we're proud um, to tout that, of course. Uh, and the irony here is, David, is we're attracting a lot of new donors. I mean, there are, of course, a majority of people who are on the list from 2015 and 2016 who are uh, active donors again. But uh, what we're finding both on our email fundraising and at our events across the country is that we're drawing, you know, oftentimes 33% new uh, donors, new contributors. And it's not all too surprising to me because when you think about our path to the nomination, David, it's, uh, I would argue, the most ambitious path, which means we have to mobilize constituencies that are often the hardest to mobilize. They're first-time voters under the age of 24. They're working-class people, low-income people, um, uh, working-class people of color, of course. And uh, it therefore is not surprising to me that they might not have dialed in last time and are now dialing in as they see potentially a path for Bernie Sanders to actually become president of the United States. Okay. Well, we're going to get to that path to nomination very quickly uh, and some of the points you just made about what it's going to take for you to put together that coalition. Do have to raise the other I word. I know you're focused on the I that uh, is the first letter in the state of Iowa, but impeachment. So obviously this could affect you and some of your competitors in the primary because you're sitting U.S. senators and so may end up having to get off the campaign trail and and go to Washington and, and be part of a historic impeachment trial. But Faz, what's your sense? Do you think that the impeachment proceedings will affect the primary race in a meaningful way? Do you think that's more a question for the general election? Is it too soon to know? Just be curious to get your take on that. There's so many events that uh, – and a lot of the X factor here, David, is how Donald Trump responds uh, to the pressure he's under. And as he becomes more – even more – this is hard to believe – more irrational um, uh, and more crazed in his 
uh, reactions, then I think it, it, he, he could potentially change and alter how candidates deal with uh, his irrationality. Um, but right now, you know, I think generally you have a concerted and united view across uh, all the candidates running for president. Um, my perspective at the moment while we talk here in early October is that Mitch McConnell has said explicitly that while he's obligated to hold a trial on impeachment, uh, he will move quickly to dismiss that trial. So what I envision happening is if the House were to pass, it would come up to the Senate and uh, he would try to hold a vote and stomp on it very quickly. And I think from our perspective, obviously, there should be a trial and it should be a fulsome trial. We should, if, if the House took its time to do an investigation and the public deserves uh, and senators deserve to render judgment uh, and you can vote however you want to vote, but there should be a trial. Uh, and, uh, you know, and obviously if Donald Trump's impeached, we're ready to take on Mike Pence. All right. So I, I remember back in 08, you know, particularly when the Lehman Brothers crash happened in mid-September uh, and then the economy really began to unravel. What, what, of course, what was most important in that race was how, you know, in that case, Barack Obama responded to the crisis and, and gave ideas about how he would handle it as president. But, you know, running the campaign during that, it's, it's hard enough to run a presidential campaign you know, when things are quiet externally. How much pressure is that put on you specifically or the campaign generally? You've obviously got a lot of things you're executing. Now you've got impeachment on top of it, which is dominating, you know, a, a lot of the both news coverage and social media commentary. I don't know yet if it's going to dominate your town hall questions in early states, but kind of what's that been like dealing with that uh, wild card? Yeah, thus far, honestly, David, it, it hasn't dominated a lot of the conversations out in the states. And I, I do think it's in part because there's an ongoing process that is running its course and that the presidential candidates to uh, probably a small degree impact that. I mean, they can obviously offer their words and thoughts, but there's a formal process that they do not control uh, that uh, Speaker Pelosi and um, Jerry Nadler and others, um, Chairman Nadler, they, they are controlling. Um, and so... I I have I believe strongly, uh, and I I think I speak for Senator Sanders on this that if we get too wrapped up in the impeachment proceedings and uh, spend a lot of our time overly focused on every action and reaction um, on impeachment, that we will be missing the boat and we will be giving Donald Trump. Uh, exactly what he needs to be able to mobilize his constituency. And so I say that because the other, the boat, if you will, in this metaphor, the thing that we need to not be missing is we've got to execute an argument against him that he has betrayed the working class of, of America, that he lied uh, to the American people when he said he would drain the swamp and uh, stand up to Goldman Sachs and other corporate interests, that he would uh, fight for health care for all and not cut Medicare and Social Security. Those were the arguments he made, that he would fight uh, against multinational corporations and execute fair trade deals. And of course, none of that was true. He stacked his government with billionaires and uh, major action in office has been to lower corporate tax rates and give billionaires even more money in their pockets. And we have to execute that argument, in my view, if we are to build the constituency that will be required to defeat him and not only defeat him but hopefully transform America, deliver a lot of seats up and down the ticket uh, and create the mandate for moving in a very, very different direction. That's interesting. I mean, this is I'm making a very narrow political point because I think the impeachment inquiry is is desperately needed and the right thing for the country. But I got much more excited about the report last week that the two states with the highest number of manufacturing job losses were Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, than the fact that we were starting the impeachment query, you know, as it relates to, yeah. to next November. So you're in a, in a really interesting and unique position in this race. Uh, Joe Biden did run for president previously, but that was back in 08, and he only lasted one state in that election. So you're the only candidate who's run recently, uh, and you're coming off a very strong performance in 16. You got 43% of the national vote, if I recall, uh, 49 in Iowa, 60 in New Hampshire. So right now, and you know, polls are what they are, very fluid, but but obviously, and I think it's to be expected, you're not going to be getting those numbers in a, a race with this many candidates. But as you think about growing your vote share in these primary and caucus states, do you focus on the folks who were with Bernie last time who might now be parked with another candidate or undecided, like we talked about in donors, it is, is it a mix of that and, and really finding new voters who didn't even participate in 16? How do you go from, again, to the extent polls are accurate at all right now, how do you go from where you are now to where you'd like to be in four or five months where you're, you know, back into the 30s or, you know, even 40? 
Right. So e, e all of the above. And you're right to say that we start with the fact that there was a constituency who literally stood uh, for Bernie Sanders at the Iowa caucuses four years ago. And so, you know, I, I think that the fact that they stood with him and for him helps um, – uh, is a blessing, right? And, and and has broken down the barrier of, oh, you know, is he a bridge too far type of candidate? Well, you, you've already stood with him and, and getting a high percentage of those back uh, is critical. Uh, but as we mentioned in the conversation around donations, there's also a healthy number of new, um, new people who are coming to the events who we've got to retain and attract. Um, and so, our our field organizing in Iowa is, is, is robust at the moment. Uh, you know, share our field data, but we feel very good about the ones and twos that we're um, uh, retaining at this moment. I, I think from my perspective, we're now in the fourth quarter, uh, four fingers up in the air for our sports fans <laughs> out there, and we got to win the fourth. And everything we've done up until this point is to position ourselves. So all the policy rollouts and all the volunteer organizing and all of the donations and having the cash on hand is to be uh, executed in the fourth quarter to help you win. Uh, we've, as I mentioned before, our most ambitious path to winning and securing this nomination, which is to mobilize constituencies that are oftentimes the hardest. So we've got to focus on that, got to find them, uh, got to get them out, train them on caucus going, get them out there. Uh, and then we've got to do a lot of paid advertising. So we're speaking on a day in which uh, we have announced um, our first uh, television ad. Uh, we'll be running for, uh, 800 points over the next two weeks, uh, $1.3 million ad buy in Iowa. So that tells you a little bit about what we think is the work that we need to do, but the fact that we're pretty confident uh, in a plan to get that work done. So I want to dig in a little bit more on the numbers in Iowa, but you did mention you started your television advertising today. I think your campaign and candidate are known as being um, you know, a digital first operation. I think Elizabeth Warren's is as well. I asked Joe Rosepars this last week. I'd like to ask you. It's interesting to me because I think in democratic circles these days, donor circles in particular, there's a sense that television, every dollar you spend on television is a complete waste. But of course, you know, you guys have decided to go on TV. So could you educate people why, you know, obviously I think you guys are investing most heavily in digital, but why television still has a role, I assume both in the primary and the general? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And and it's eyeballs, right? And and it is just true in terms of the amount of people you can reach um, and getting their attention to your core message. And particularly in an environment, uh, David, you were talking about impeachment before, there are other things competing uh, in the news environment for people's time and attention. Uh, and obviously for a candidate like Bernie Sanders, who we believe has a unique appeal and a uh, message strength that we want to get out there and heard. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna try every tool in the tool shed, and uh, thankfully, people have um, armed this campaign with a sufficient amount of resources that we can think about utilizing every tool in the tool shed. So, it, as you mentioned, yes, a digital first campaign. Uh, many ways, drawing inspiration from you and Joe and prior lives, and I think. We, you know, we've cranked out something like 250 or 300 uh, digital videos at this point. We built a very impressive kind of digital uh, video operation, live stream all of his events in-house uh, and uh, proud of that. And in this first TV ad, in fact, was created in-house. I'm um, proud of that too. And so what I would say in short to your um, good question there, David, is we're going to continue to be a, a digital first candidate, but we're going to use every tool in the tool shed to reach the largest number of eyeballs and voters at the end of the day, right? Caucus goers that we can. And that's a purely data-driven decision, kind of your sense of which voters are getting information from where? Yes. And, and not to get too deep into, you know, what our data is telling us, but there's like, there's, there's, there's areas where he's strongest and this is no mystery. I mean, anybody reading public polls knows some of this, that like the, the demographics that we need to do a little bit better with tend to be older and they tend to watch TV. Mm -hmm. And so I think we've got to make sure that they are also hearing, in our view, the best of what we have to offer about Bernie Sanders. And in this ad, uh, you know, our, our closing line is Bernie Sanders, um, he'll fight for you. We know he'll fight for you as president because he always has. And that is a core to the argument that you can trust him and he has always embraced the fight and will do so as president.
So back to how you're going to grow your vote share uh, to get it where you need to to secure the nomination. Jeff Weaver, who was Bernie's campaign manager uh, in 16 and, and is now an advisor to the campaign and to you, said something recently in an article. The quote was, some people are trying to position themselves in quote unquote Bernie's lane. But as the campaign goes on, people who want a bold progressive vision for the country We'll come back to Bernie Sanders. So, Faz, you mentioned mm-hmm. you think it's going to be a combination for you guys, some folks coming back home and then needing to identify new supporters, either because, you know, they might not have participated before in a caucus or primary, or, or maybe they chose a different candidate in prior elections. When you think about people coming back to Bernie, what do you think will trigger that? Is it simply we get closer to the actual event? Will it be the debates? Maybe it's not one thing. I'd just be curious, kind of your sense of yeah. how that would unfold. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I think I'll say at the outset that we felt we felt confident of the course of this campaign. And we talked early on, we launched on February 19th, we had early on conversations about the fact that there's a lot of good candidates out there. And we got to allow people and we got to feel comfortable and confident in our case, allow people to kick the tires on a lot of different candidates. And, and quite frankly, even urge them to do so. Hey, go to other people's events. We believe that having heard a lot of the arguments out there, you'll come back uh, to this. And one of the reasons we feel confident in Bernie Sanders' case is it's a unique one. It's, it, it stands out in the field. Uh, when we can go through a variety of areas here, but I think the principles of universality govern Bernie Sanders' political philosophy. It governs how he how he proposes policy solutions. It's Medicare for all. It's free tuition at public colleges and universities for all. It's canceling student debt for all. It's canceling past due medical debt for all. It's having rent control standards for all across the nation, right? It is a principle of universality that says, in order for us to be invested in improving society, we know that we are interlinked and interwoven in this fight. It's a multiracial working class movement. We also know that deck has been stacked against us. So while there is an, a, a principle, I think, of universality that governs them. There's also a principle of fighting for the powerless and knowing who has power and attempting to truly take on that power, in some cases take that power away and deliver it to those who need it and are desperate for it. And, and that is the working class of America. And when you look at the fact that for the past 45 years, workers' wages have essentially remained absolutely stagnant. There's a working class crisis going on, and they are they are mired in debt. They are mired in student debt, college debt, you know, credit card debt, uh, uh, anchors on their backs. And if you – I think in order to understand Bernie Sanders is to feel that in your bones because he feels it very and you know uh, deep in him and has for a very long time and the injustice of the fact that too few have too much and we've got to take them on and it's going to require a fight. And so at the end of the day, why do I think people to your question, why are they going to come home? Because they know and trust that he's the one who feels this in his bones and really wants to take on the fight in a way that it will require upsetting the apple cart and doing things in an unconventional way, being an organizer in chief, as he has talked about. It is, I think we're talking about an a type of presidency we have not seen in modern history uh, and one that I, quite frankly, am excited about. So the first place that both your electoral strategy and and that message and story is going to be tested is Iowa. Bernie Sanders, four years ago, came within a whisker of winning the caucuses against Hillary Clinton. I'm curious as you guys think about Iowa, one, do you have a pretty firm sense of what you think the turnout's likely to be, or at least a range? And then in a big field like this, what do you think the winner needs to get? Whether you want to talk about that as a percentage or raw number of caucus attenders, which probably is the most important number in the campaign right now. Every every campaign, at least that has a credible pathway, has some sense of the number of you know names they want to get in their database to turn out. And so many decisions flow from that. So what's your sense of both the turnout and, and kind of what do you think the winner would need to come out of Iowa with that momentum? So, David, first, I'm going to turn this back on you real quick and see if you remember. But what, what, can you can you uh, remind the audience what was the Iowa caucus turnout in 2008? About 242, I believe, 242,000. I think that's right. Something like in the high 240s. I, I, that was my number at 242, probably right. Yeah. So, what we're anticipating is roughly an excited and enthusiastic turnout along those lines, and maybe exceeding it, right? And so now you're, you know, we're in the ballpark, right? Let's mm-hmm. say 240, 250. Who, who knows? And obviously, it could be less. Uh, we would hope, as this candidate believes strongly, that you know, the one of the core reasons he's running is to engineer mass turnout in America. So obviously 
obviously the bigger the better from our perspective. Um, so if you start there and then you're looking at, a, I think you mentioned the number and I'd agree with it, somewhere in the 30 to 33% range. If we can get there, uh, we've got a path to victory. Obviously, that's not uh, one uh, that we're going to settle for. I'm going to keep going higher and bigger and uh, see how many people we can get and attract and recruit. Quite frankly, you think about Iowa and 3 million, I think, voting adults and you got, let's say, a little less than half of those uh, 1.4 million, maybe Democrat uh, voting population and then only 250,000 people showing up to the caucuses. I mean, it's just Come on, man! <laughs> we got to we got to get a, a lot of people weighing in, and the amount the amount that's on the line here is tremendous, uh, and we'll live with the consequences. But I would hope that a, a lot of people would feel the need to get out there and register their voice. Right. So for folks listening, you know, I think that is the most important number. And as important as fundraising is, as important as impeachment poll numbers are, it's what's the turnout going to be in Iowa, and, and what do the leading campaigns think they need? To get so, question, Faz. I think that oftentimes I think people look at at lanes incorrectly. It's never that neat, and so I think in this case there's multiple candidates who are perceived to be in each other's lane potentially. A lot of folks talk about Senator Sanders and, and Senator Warren. I don't think it's as easy as to say that those votes are going to transfer from one to the other. But think about a scenario where after South Carolina, so you've gone through the first four states. And maybe one of you has done particularly well uh, and the other one hasn't met expectations. Maybe you've roughly done about the same, you know, overperformed in one or two states versus the other. Do you think as we get deeper into the calendar, into Super Tuesday and and those big states that are going to primary in March and April, do you think this naturally goes down to like a two-person race where – if Biden does what he needs to do and there's a question there, it's Biden versus one of you. Do you think this could be three or four candidates heading deeper into the field? And, and again, I know there's so much that you know we have to see to transpire. But what do you think we're heading to when we come out of South Carolina? And secondly, how are you guys preparing for that? You've been through this before. At least your candidate's been through this before. So how are you preparing for, as you're spending so much time on the ground in these early states, preparing your organization and, and financially to compete you know, deeper into the calendar. David, we're preparing to win Iowa, which will then translate into winning New Hampshire, which will translate into winning Nevada, which will translate into winning California, and we'd be off and on our way, right? And so hey, honestly, I've said that, that before, man. I, I understand. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's a yeah. path there, right? Yeah. As I lay that out for you, I think there's nothing about that that you would say, okay, I'm not, you know, that makes sense, right? And then looking at the map and the the path now and the and the support, is there is that plausible? Uh, absolutely, it is plausible. There's some work to do. Now, if you want to challenge me, well, what happens if you know that doesn't happen? I, I, it's hard. It's too hard to play that game because, like, what was it? Is it three-way tie for first uh, in Iowa, and then how does that? How does New Hampshire help sort that out? How does I, Nevada? I don't. I don't know. I, and I, I, as much as we want to think of that, that there's a hypothe- many hypotheses we could draw up as as reality happens to hit. It's the one you didn't even ever think of. So I try not to spend too much time getting down the rabbit hole of alternative paths and theories and spending much more of my time on the path that we need to have happen for him to be the nomination the nominee right of the Democratic Party and uh, pouring more time and energy into making that a reality right I've asked this of a couple of folks who are running uh, campaigns of your I say competitor I know they're friends too but do you think and I, I, I understand that there is some hypotheticals here but given the size of the field, do you think it's likely that we're going to end up with a candidate who wins the majority of the pledged delegates? Or do you think we could be in a scenario where maybe somebody is, is the clear leader, but is not going to have the delegates they need heading into Milwaukee? If you're asking me to guess what you are, right? So I'm just purely throwing out a guess and everyone can have their own and my, my opinion is worth whatever it's worth, right? I do believe you'll have somebody gain the majority of delegates. And um, I I tend to believe that by March 3rd, maybe March 10th, we'll know who the nominee is. And uh, I, I, that that's my own assumption. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, I, could I be wrong about that? Absolutely, I could be wrong. And I also think, quite frankly, there's a desire to um, also make sure that we are building strength in the effort to defeat Donald Trump. And, and I think you can just see how the candidates have – um, engage with each other to this point, and obviously, at some point, you can imagine that there'll be people wanting to draw a little bit of contrast with each other and clarity of the choices that voters have to make. Um, but I do think uh, there's there's Trump looming over everyone's um, shoulders here, and they're uh, they know that at the end of this, we really are going to be united to defeat him. Uh, and and I think that's quite uh, honestly factored into everyone's 
um, at least psyche, right? Whether it's a factor in the strategy, I don't know, but like at least right. it, it's sitting there in everyone's thoughts and minds. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, was at the White House the last time we had an incumbent president seek re-election. Thankfully, Barack Obama won. Have studied carefully, you know, Bush and Reagan and Clinton. And I do think, you know, one of Trump's big advantages is time. You know, he's going to be better prepared for the general election, better resourced, better organized in the battleground states because our candidate's mission is to get the primary. So it's interesting you say that. So you think that assuming somebody ends up taking a lead and, and is clear that, you know, all things being equal, that person is likely to to be the leader, that other campaigns will look at that. In part, of course, the big mission is if we don't defeat Trump, we may not survive another four years. But it's also that, you know, the difference between the general election starting in June or July versus March or April is pretty huge. So is that kind of your view of it? It is at the moment, David. I, yeah, I do think right, that right. there's a desire all the candidates' parts to throw um, a, an aggressive uh, everything at it early. And uh, I think we'll see things sort um, early and we'll have a read on where this is going. And uh, things things are compressed in this schedule, as you well know. Um, by the time you get onto March 3rd, you got a lot of delegates at play in, you know, Colorado and Virginia and Texas, California. I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, delegates at play by March 3rd and certainly by March 10th. So I, I, my own view is, yeah, they, they, we're going to have a, a clearer sense of uh, where things stand, maybe even before then. Right. So if you could talk a little bit about, you know, you, I'm sure as the campaign manager, your candidate, a lot of senior staff, you literally see Iowa in your sleep, see New Hampshire in your <laughs> sleep, see South Carolina and Nevada in your sleep. It, it's occupying so much of your time, your resources. But as you just mentioned, you know, the race changes dramatically after South Carolina. You basically, it turns into a, a national primary yeah. where you're not spending as much time on the ground. The primaries and caucuses come and go, many of them uh, very large states to produce a lot of delegates. You've obviously shown the financial ability here this year, already raising over $60 million to have durability. You've obviously got grassroots volunteers, both from the last race in 16 and new ones you've identified. So how do you think about, it'd be, I think it'd be interesting for people listening mm -hmm. as a campaign manager, how are you planning for post-South Carolina? How much of that time uh, oh, how much of your time does that take i'm just curious what the campaign's doing to get ready for that yeah you're getting into my existential angsts and uh, <laughs> <laughs> the challenges that i have i mean so like I mean, i'll just you've sat in these shoes david and obviously uh, i i value they're not very comfortable I, I shoes. Value, yeah. <laughs> you did it well uh, and uh, i i hope to parallel your success but you know if if um I, and that's why you know Jeff has been a you mentioned Jeff Weaver a critical uh, uh, ally for me and how and how building all of this together he went through it once before I need as much wisdom I, my own management styles tend to be as many as much wisdom as I can get around me I'm I, I'm not the type of person who believes I'm coming to this with uh, ironclad uh, uh, views that uh, are the ones uh, um, uh, that should rule the day I I, I truly want to hear. Uh, every perspective uh, as much as I can and then make decisions accordingly. But it, you start with the fact that we have a volunteer advantage and a cash on hand advantage, right? And, I, 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 and we'll see, obviously, as other candidates come in and what their numbers are. But I do think uh, as we head into quarter four, I think we got a volunteer advantage and a cash on hand advantage over the other candidates. And now you got to use those to your strength, right, and maintain the strengths as strengths. That cash on hand advantage can dissipate super quickly if, for instance, we decided, oh, California and Texas require a massive investment to win all of those delegates that are at stake. Now, how many, David, how many field organizers do you think you need to win? California and Texas, right? I mean, like, whatever number you threw at me, David, I'm sure the answer is that times three, right? And, and <laughs> right. there's probably, in many cases, not enough money that you could ever throw, particularly at a California, which is a nation state unto its own, right? Uh, and so now you, you are, I mean, you raised the right uh, question, which is as you decide over resources, how much of it gets pushed to March 3, March 10th versus February 3, February 11th, February 22nd, February 29th. And I, you know, my, my view right now is, uh, you know, got, you got to win early. 
and you gotta then you gotta continue to invest. So all those things are gonna come quickly, right? A month in, we're gonna we're gonna be on Super Tuesday. Uh, Super Tuesday. So I think uh, we have. I th- I think this is true. Uh, been the most aggressive of all the presidential candidates of hiring into Super Tuesday states right now. So we have, you know, Massachusetts state director. We got a Maine state director. We got a Minnesota state director. We got a Colorado state director. Uh, Oklahoma state director. Um, so uh, we are certainly, um, play- and in California, we've already hired uh, well over ten, uh, I think closer to twenty staff in California, um, and so we are making those investments, as you can tell. Uh, the question is, how much do you scale? And uh, you'll appreciate this, but in the back of my mind, you know, you know that after February third, you've got a lot of Iowa staff mm-hmm. who, if they want to stick with the campaign, they've got to go or somewhere. And you want to reward those people who've done great work and give them the opportunity, and then, you know, uh, make sure that they are you're building onto the movement as we go. So those are also in my mind, and we've got a, a very large organization right now um, to, to help him win. Uh, but I am trying to both conserve and plot resources to give him the best chance to win and conserve the strengths, uh, which are volunteer advantage and cash on hand advantage to help him win. Yeah. So what is your, Faz, what is your headcount now in the campaign? What do you think it's uh, to by Iowa? And that is fascinating because basically I don't think folks understand whether you win Iowa or come in second, you know, don't do what you'd like, but you're moving on. There's a whole logistical challenge around people movement of moving those organizers from Iowa to Minnesota or to Illinois, from Nevada to California. But talk a little bit about what you've built to date and and what you think that grows to by, by caucus day. And I'll add to your point about the logistical movement, uh, David, is that we are the first presidential campaign in history to have a, a unionized workforce. And and as we've struck a collective bargained agreement with our staff, it's also to respect uh, the tenure of service and um, uh, people's preferences and wishes about where they might want to go. So you, mm. you're, we're also adding another layer. That's a big change. The, and I assume that means you can't ask people to drive overnight at three in the morning yep, either, but, right? There's kind of hours that people but, work. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting being in a unionized workforce on a campaign, one of my experiences is that ultimately campaign staffers who join and want to work for a presidential candidate understand what they're signing up for, right? At the end of the day, they know mm-hmm. that they, they're they here to work as hard as they can to help Bernie Sanders become president, president of the United States. And from my perspective, what a collective bargaining agreement does is, is ensure that we do not treat them as robots, but as human beings. And so are there, you know, blackout days essentially where they, they can be a little, like get a moment to decompress or, you know, will they get, uh, as you said, like, are they ordered to go at 3 a.m. or could they go at, at, at 7.30 a.m., right? Those kinds of things. Would that be fine? And so I, I think it has been a healthy, uh, and obviously we believe it as a campaign, that a unionized workforce uh, makes us stronger. And I do believe that it, it is a good check on making sure that we're doing things the right way, treating humans as humans, uh, but also accordingly as, as the person who's trying to manage the operation also um, adding in all of the factors there that will uh, need to be accounted for as I go through the logistical challenges of moving people around and uh, putting us in a position to win. Um, now I can't uh, remember what you were initially asking me about. Oh, kind of what your, you know, size of your team now, oh, headcount, yeah, sure. kind of how you see that growing over the next few months as you as you head in Iowa. Well, it's north of 400, David, mm-hmm. uh, and we were strong. I mean, the bulk of it is uh, 70 uh, 5% or so out in the states, uh, out of headquarters and you know, very strong in Iowa, New Hampshire, even South Carolina, Nevada, big staff, and then as you already discussed, California. And so that's uh, the bulk of it. And obviously a lot of field organizers out there uh, helping build what is, I think, the largest volunteer network in America on the presidential campaigns right now and lots of work to do, uh, lots of constituencies to find and mobilize. Um, so I, I don't know uh, if you're asking me how much we want to grow. I'm still um, I'm still deliberating over that because as, as as I just mentioned to you, there's this question of after February 3rd, after February 11th, you know, there's going to be some people there who we want to take care of. Quite frankly, right. So speaking of staff in other states, there was reports recently. You guys made a, a few adjustments. I'm not actually interested in talking about the specifics of that, but just as a manager. You know, because I've gone through this before as well. You're always loath to make changes, right? Because change is hard. But on the other hand, if something's not working, probably the worst thing to do is to continue down a path. So just as as a campaign manager, uh, I'm yeah. sure that the all decision was ultimately your kind of how do you process you know, Man. that that choice, essentially. I love having this conversation with you because you you certainly <laughs> have, have added your experiences. But as, as someone, I, I, I don't know how you feel about it, but my, my own take on this was, 
I have to make decisions that are best for the campaign irrespective of what the public perception of those decisions is. Am I going to like account for what the public perception is? Sure. But am I going to allow that to dictate uh, decisions that the campaign believes it should make? Uh, no, I'm not going to let that happen. And particularly for this ca campaign, I think one I would argue to you is generally um, – I, I think dismissed by uh, corporate media, um, one that is often written off by corporate media. I think they often look to uh, preconceived notions of what they believe of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Oh, it's a, maybe they think it's a mess. Maybe they think it's uh, chaotic. Maybe they think it's uh, uh, you know it's flailing. It's ending. It's over. It's done. You know, th those are the kinds of I think preconceptions that land in some of our elite media's minds and then they go searching for affirm self-affirming notions of, of of how they're right. And I, th I think, I would argue to you as a campaign manager, that there's been some narratives and stories written out there that unfairly s suggest a campaign in, quote, disarray just because we simply dismissed uh, you know, a certain staffer in a place or moved one chair from here to over there. I I'm like, I, I, I can't speak to other campaign's personnel moves, but man, I, I, I can't imagine the others also, also haven't had to do that. If they haven't, I'm kudos to them. But I will always – I feel strongly. I always make moves that I think will put us in the best position to win irrespective of how public perception might um, uh, perceive of those. I – I, just, I also think, quite frankly, we, we get a little bit of the short end of the stick on how it gets, tends to get perceived, right? right? There is a world in which it's like, hey, Bernie Sanders' campaign making moves to best position itself to win, uh, and it's doing so aggressively, uh, and you know, uh, where it sees a weakness, addresses it with strength. And nope, that's not the narrative. Right? <laughs> Instead, the other the other end of it is, oh no, 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 they're they're in disarray, they're in chaos. And I I'd, I'd say this honestly and frankly to you, David, is one thing I'm very proud of is the culture within the campaign and we've gone through some moments where you know things got uh, you know we had like union organizing um, uh, and we've had you know a couple of these things reported in the press and I can proudly say that it has just bonded the team even more closely and it, sometimes that's what adversity does for your campaign right is it it, it helps you uh, reaffirm what your core mission is and why you're here in the first place. And I think it has done that for our team for sure. We get motivated by it every time you know, there's an article out there saying, oh, Bernie Sanders is done. It's all over for him. It, it just drives us even harder and the camaraderie and the collegiality on this campaign is, is strong. And I, I, I'm particularly proud of it, but I know that that's not the narrative out there, at least in some quarters. Right. No, your point about adversity is right. I mean, I, I reflect back on, on 08 and I think as great as the Iowa victory was, and it's still my favorite moment in, in politics when Barack Obama won the caucuses, it was really our loss in New Hampshire that brought the campaign together and I think showed us what we could be. By the way, there's most of my campaigns I worked early in my life, I, I would have loved to have been part of a union <laughs> because uh, <laughs> the treatment was, let's Indeed. say, not uh, not, uh, not so charitable. And, and David, to your point of adversity, I mean, I'm a, I'm a former college baseball player. I like, uh, love team sports, right? And and I, I'd say, you know, by baseball tends to infuse a lot of my management style, honestly. And I, I always in my mind is always the fact that a Hall of Fame hitter uh, is somebody who got to hit three out of ten times at the plate. And let's, that means they struck out, got out, whatever, seven out of ten times. That means they made many errors out in the field. It means they're a pitcher who lost many, many games, right? And, and ultimately in baseball particularly, and the sport in which you have to overcome a hell of an amount of adversity, and it is truly overcoming adversity that uh, best determines whether you succeed or not, right? And that is – I've always felt that about the best uh, – um, um, major league baseball players is that while they have immense talent, what they really have done is shown mental strength and adversity uh, to, to overcome adversity. And that is, of course, how I'd like to conceive of us running this campaign. Well, as a baseball fanatic, I, I love that analogy. So if Bernie Sanders is successful, Faz, and, and is the Democratic nominee, and obviously you're focused on the primary now, but you know he ran last time you're obviously got an eye towards, uh, as you said, this is kind of all the semifinals to, to figure out who gets in the finals with Trump. What do you think the battleground state map might look like in a Sanders-Trump race? Oh, man, it, it, that's what's exciting to me, honestly, David, is because, well, I mean, we know the core states. I think, uh, you know, we're, we, we understand Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Obviously, M Minnesota was too tight last time and probably got to pay attention to that very much so. But I, I also think that the constituency that a Bernie Sanders mobilizes uh, and appeals to puts – it could potentially put states on the map that are 
um, uh, that that we that quite frankly may not have considered. Uh, and I think it's because of a working class, particularly as you dive into a place like North Carolina and, and you know, Obama wanted. Uh, I think obviously Texas is moving very much. Um, and I, I, one of the least uh, uh, appreciated aspects of, in terms of our coalition is that Latinos uh, are very strong Bernie supporters across almost you know across the board. Uh, we found great strength within the Latino community. I think there's a simple answer to that, which is uh, many Latinos in America are working class people. Right? They, they they know that the deck is stacked against them. They understand that they know uh, that they need a fighter to fight up against corporate interests and 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 truly provide that kind of basic. Uh, human needs uh, uh, that respect our core humanity. And uh, I think they feel it strongly and I think they see it in Bernie Sanders. And so when you think about that map uh, of what that does over – if you factor in strong Latino support, you factor in the, uh, that Donald Trump uh, should, <laughs> knock on wood, not have very much Latino support after having watched this four years of, uh, of administration. Uh, I think that that really changes the map in a lot of different places. But I mean, I don't want to get too naive about it. I mean, there's a core map that we all agree on: Michigan, Pennsylvania, right. Wisconsin. And for that, I do believe he's. Uh, it is a core to why I think his his case for winning is so strong. You look at the head to heads in those states; he's doing quite quite well. Uh, and obviously, Biden in many of those polls is also doing well. I would argue to you that. Um, can I do my little spiel here, real quick, on Biden and, and Bernie on this? Uh, so when you look at the polls, right, head to head, and I we I, we are a campaign; we try not to let polls govern us and dis discount a lot of it. But when you look at head-to-head -head polls, uh, one, argue, one argument that I would make about why Bernie's numbers uh, should matter to you is because everyone – Bernie Sanders has run for president before. Everyone knows I think you essentially have 99% name ID with the guy. And uh, if there's – I do this all the time. I go around the country and say, what's one issue you know about Bernie Sanders? Right, David Pluff, what's one issue you know about Bernie Sanders? Well, he's going to take on the powerful on behalf of working people. And there's one specific one, which is Medicare for All. That's no, a symbol Medicare of that. Medicare for All, right? yes. Yeah. That, and that, so that, like that tucks you, beneath that, yes. Right. When you factor that in and you've got a candidate who uh, is, is showing strength head-to-head -head and people know who he is and what he's about, in my mind, that builds a spine to that number. That means when you know people come at him attacking and criticizing him, it's built on a spine. When you look at Biden's, I would argue to you, quite frankly, if I asked – and I've done this, my own polls running around the country. Like, name one thing you know about Joe Biden. You know what the most common answer is that I get, David? I'm sure you know what it is. I'm sure I do. Yes, Vice President Barack Obama. And so, if, if in my mind, that is not built on a spine. That argument is not built on a spine. That means when you criticize and you come at him and you attack him for waffling on trade deals, for fundraising at the altar of the rich or, uh, you know, having been on every, uh, all sides of so many different issues, it's going to hurt. Because it wasn't ever built on a spine. Um, and that, that would be my argument of, of the strength of why the head-to-head -head appeals uh, of, of Bernie being as well um, positioned right now in those polls matters, in those core states. So hearing you talk, do you believe that, let's say in the, the 10 days before the Iowa caucuses and that week between Iowa and New Hampshire and as we head into Nevada and South Carolina, how important is that question of electability, is that going to be the thing that undecided voters are going to be wrestling with between you and Sanders and Mayor Pete and Biden? Uh, is it going to be health care? I mean, do you think that I, I remember back in 04, and maybe there's some mythology here, but but the view is that when voters and I were really began to focus on the race and who they thought was the best to take on Bush, that's really when Kerry and Edwards began to surge. So what's your view of how electability is going to play out in the sort of closing days in those early states? Yeah, so I felt strongly we started this campaign with a theory of that, and I've, I've, I've stuck to it. I still stick to it, which is at the end of the day, they're going to kick the tires. Voters are going to kick the tires on a lot of candidates. There's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be moments here, moments there. You know, impeachment, as you mentioned, will come up and, and maybe it'll go down. Who knows? We'll see. Um, uh, there's gonna be other. There's gonna be things kicking up a lot of dust, and the dust will settle. And on voting days in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, California, I think voters go to the polls with essentially two core questions in their minds: 
two core questions. One is who is the best, who's the candidate best positioned to defeat Donald Trump? I think that is one that is very core to their mind. And then the numbers, number two question is uh, who do I most trust to make the change happen that I so desperately seek? And in my mind, those are two circles that are overlapping the creative Venn diagram. Uh, and our j job there is to put position Bernie Sanders as number one when you overlap those two questions, not to separate those two questions, to join those two questions to create uh, you know, the combination effect because the combination effect is core to our to our argument for Bernie. Uh, and um, that, that, is, that is how I think ultimately this will go. And that's why you know, we feel strongly about the trust case that he has to make. I think it is, it is core to Bernie, right? And 40 years of consistency, a track record of taking on entrenched powerful interest, no hesitation, no flinch, uh, the way in which he uh, runs this campaign, the way he'd run the presidency, the way he's been a senator, it, it, the, he will fight for you. And he doesn't uh, much give a damn uh, how much power, influence, title, or money you have. Uh, and so I think that that's core. And then we got to couple that, I think, with the, the case for how he beats Donald Trump, which I personally feel is very strong. I will acknowledge that others you know, may have hesitations about it because of, uh, you know, the de democratic socialism in the air. And as I mentioned, like, that's why I went through the spiel of uh, Biden, versus Biden versus Bernie on on why those numbers matter to us. And one last thing, by the way, I mean, I, when you've got a candidate who is more individual contributions, more individual donors than the only one with more than Donald Trump right now, it's proof in the pudding and how you're building that constituency. But more core to that case is, the Democratic Party needing to reckon a bit with how Donald Trump won and he campaigned as a racist, a sexist, a homophobe and all those things and he's going to do so again. He won last time. He'll do it again this time and it's just baked into the cake with him and the, the, I would argue to you that one of the core reasons he was able to build some of those constituencies in Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin is that it was that drain the swamp nonsense and it was the taking on Goldman Sachs and I can't be bought uh, and the ability you have to credibly – uh, uh, argue against that, to call him a liar, to call him uh, someone who's betrayed the working class is everything. And I have zero hesitations as in my mind, as you can as you can quite tell. I have zero hesitation that Bernie Sanders is the most credible in executing that argument against Donald Trump. So no doubt, I think with, when, you know, there's more than people, I think, realize there are going to be, you know, true undecided swing voters in these battleground states where that winning that economic argument against Trump is, is going to be paramount. But on electability, one question, you know, you mentioned some folks may have a hesitation because of socialism. Now, it's clear that whoever we nominate um, is going to be in favor of infanticide, killing babies, you can't eat a hamburger anymore, taxes are going to be raised 90%, you know, we're going to basically be infested with criminals and rapists. Like, he's going to say that. Sounds like you've been uh, pre-reading Donald Trump's Twitter thread for the next few Yeah, months. right. It doesn't take much. There's no rocket science there. But I think what we're going to see is there's going to be a lot more money put behind that, you know, both by Putin, but also by the Trump campaign. So, but it is in service, I think, of a very important number, which is, you know, Trump only won Wisconsin with 47.2, if I recall, percent of the vote, Michigan with 47.7. So I still don't believe Donald Trump can get to 49.5 or 50% in a lot of these states, but he can get to 47.5. And so what he needs to do is drive vote to third parties, right? And so are you worried that, you know, because Bernie is a democratic socialist, that that makes that argument a little bit easier? Or do you think it's going to be the same for all the I'm just curious about that. And again, I know your head's in the primaries. It should be. Yeah. But I think listeners are, you know, panicked about whether we can be Trump or not and, and want to make sure we get this right. Well, I, you know, we can't control for the billionaire class and what they'll decide to do and how they'll decide to spend their money. I think like my my assumption starting off is that they're all in with Donald Trump and they're going to, you know, throw in all their money um, and, and already are, right, to make him the most well-funded presidential campaign in history. Um, and he's rewarded them. They will reward him back. I think, uh, you know, quite frankly, when you talk about democratic socialism, which is changing in numbers, I think one thing that has happened particularly with amongst Democratic voters over the course of Bernie Sanders' run is that there's some increasing, you know this well, right? There's some increasing support for it. I will acknowledge it's underwater. But one thing uh, I hope everyone knows and understands is there, there's, there's, um, uh, there's a name out there 
that does much better than democratic socialism. That name is Bernie Sanders. And, it, you know, and as much as whatever people might feel like, it might be something if uh, David Plouffe ran as a democratic socialist. It might be this one thing if Bas Shakir ran as a democratic socialist. But um, there's a, a lot of trust uh, built into Bernie when he runs and people know who he is, what he's about. They're more comfortable about him, I would argue. And, they, and it's reflected in the polls. They know who he is, what he's about and why, uh, quite frankly, he grasps to that label and clings to it because and, and I think most voters' mind, they know that the reason he clings to a label is because it, it is a signifier of who he fights for and who he fights against. It, it is the marker, as a, a, a smash the power structure candidate who says, oh, you know, there's the, the wealthy and billionaire and elite class who've got all the power. Uh, I'm 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 going to call myself I'm going to call myself a democratic socialist because the my politics has been oriented around fighting for all and back to my principles of universality and how he thinks about delivering for the American public and so I I I actually end up I know you know other pollsters might disagree or have different theories of the case I actually think it ends up becoming a benefit for you because it, at the end of the day you know you need credibility and you need core conviction you need authenticity. Uh, uh, to to get voters to trust you, know who you are, what you're about, and all those kinds of things build into it. They, I think they acknowledge and respect differences of opinion if they know that you are leveling with them and being honest with them. Right. So, Fez, thank you for sharing your case and the theory for Bernie Sanders winning the primary in the general election. So as your last question, you're spending every waking moment trying to help Bernie Sanders make history. But, you know, Faz Shakir has already made some history. Um, by my understanding, you are the first Muslim and Pakistani American to manage the presidential campaign for a major party candidate. You may not have time to reflect on what that means, but I'd I love for you to share a little bit about what that does mean to you um, and, and what it means for others who may follow in your in your footsteps. You know, I honestly don't love um, talking about myself. I'm old-fashioned about staffing. I believe that, you know, the, the candidate is the principal. We work for the principal. But I, I'll just share a story with you, David, that when I, you know, became – when I was named um, Bernie's campaign, or at least I guess when the when the news became public, um, there were uh, stories all over the world, and I, I ended up getting uh, inquiries from you know outlets and uh, like Indonesia and Malaysia and uh, you know uh, Egypt, Turkey, uh, and uh, uh, and it, it, there were you know stories in the Pakistani press and such. And I remember coming home and talking with my wife about that, and I was like, you know, it, it's like. It's like an international phenomenon at the moment to, to a degree. I mean, like, I'm not going <laughs> to blow this out of the water here, but it was it was mentioned in a lot of different international places. And at that moment, my head was like kind of spinning a little bit because if you get wrapped up into all of that and you start to think about all oh, these other people are looking at you uh, and what you're going to do, it will distract you. And I at that moment, truly, it was like I think February 20th, February 19th, February 20th. I was like, if I'm going to succeed in this job, I got to bury my head and focus on what's right in front of me and getting the things done to be as good of a campaign manager as I can be for Bernie Sanders. And at the end of it, it will sort itself out and people will assess uh, whether I did a good job or not or, or render you know judgment on me accordingly. I would add to that that I am mindful and cognizant and maybe the thing that I think about most is when you become the first, uh, there are people and, they have, and I see this, you know, I travel with him, uh, to, with Senator Sanders to college campuses all over the country or at different events. And uh, the number of times, honestly, uh, David, where somebody over the rope line comes up uh, to me after Bernie has passed and says, you know, is, is a Muslim and say, hey, it just means a lot to me that you're a um, campaign manager. Congratulations. Thank you for everything you're doing. And in my mind, I'm just – all I'm thinking is, uh, you know, A, that that person feels like there's an opportunity available to them that they may not have thought was available to them before or may have inspired them in a different direction. And B, fast freaking do as best as you can <laughs> so that right. the, the doors will remain open for them. So so that that's where my head's at, David. Well, thanks for sharing that. I have no doubt, by the way, Faz, if Bernie Sanders is the nominee, I'm sure uh, Trump will make you an honorary member of the squad. But anyway, thanks for sharing that. I'm ready for it. Thanks for sharing that and spending so much time talking to us about your campaign. And get some rest if that's possible in the weeks to come. And and good luck, you know, as we start uh, heading towards the actual voting and, and caucusing. I appreciate it, David. It's a pleasure talking to you. It was an honor. Thanks, Faz. That was a fascinating conversation with Faz. A few things jumped out to me. So one, they seem comfortable with a lot of people who, who voted for Bernie last time, uh, you know, kicking their tires on other candidates right now. They, they have some confidence that 
that enough of those people will come back to them that they'll be able to do what they need to do in the early states. So that'll be one of the more important questions that, that at some point we'll know whether that happened, but, but they seem to believe that a lot of those people who were for Bernie last time will come home. Secondly, they, they do believe both in their fundraising, the people attending rallies, the people signing up to volunteer. Fast thought about a third of the people involved in the campaign were not Bernie supporters in 16. So that was an interesting data point, and, and clearly they're focused on growing the Sanders base, not just relying on the 16 base. Third, Faz is pretty clear that they think they need to do really well in the early states. So you didn't hear from him some hemming and hawing that says, yeah, you know, we can come in third or fourth in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and everything's fine. They, they clearly believe they need to do really well early, even win early to have a chance at the nomination. I thought it was really interesting to hear their strategy behind their TV ads. They're known as a, a digital campaign, but they went up with a really massive television buy this week. So hearing from Faz why that was important and making a pretty plain point that clearly an area Bernie Sanders need to, needs to grow his support is with older voters and older voters still consume a lot of their content on television. So that's why they've started to advertise heavily on television. And I thought it was interesting uh, to get his sense on the general election. You know, his view is um, he does think there's going to be a candidate who emerges as the clear pledged delegate leader, uh, maybe even get a majority, but that that person will probably be clear in March. And and his view is the other candidates may get out because they want to give that person the best chance to be Donald Trump. So that was really interesting. And then clearly, not surprisingly, the Sanders campaign believes that Bernie Sanders would be the best candidate against Trump both in states like Wisconsin and Michigan, but but also in states like Arizona and North Carolina. So we spent some time talking about what they see their strengths and assets are in, in a race against Trump. So again, I think a lot of the focus recently has been on Elizabeth Warren. She's been surging, I think appropriately so. You know, can Biden hold his lead where he has it? But, you know, Sanders just posted a big fundraising number. If they are truly getting 33% of their support financially, volunteer and voting coming from new people, if they can reclaim a lot of that 16 support, you know, they'll be in a strong position. So I think it's a really important conversation and, and uh, hope all of you enjoyed it.